Today's episode is brought to you by the Sega Dreamcast. Don't think out loud, it might hear you. It knows it's alive. Outsmarting it just makes it smarter. It's thinking! Hey, have I ever mentioned that the Dreamcast had a goddamn horrifying ad campaign? Because it did! None of what I just said was made up. That's all actual lines from early Dreamcast locked ads. What the hell? Uh, anyway, here's 2000's Cannon Spike on this episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Carlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. And today, much like Marvel vs. Capcom last time, we're hitting a game that is only a Mega Man game by virtue of containing Mega Man as a playable character, not by actually being a Mega Man main series game. Or really being a Capcom game? So, it's the year 2000. Capcom and Sega have become friends with one another. Capcom, despite having a whole arcade division, has even put Marvel vs. Capcom 2, one of their biggest fighting games ever released, into the arcade on the Sega Now Me hardware instead of their own proprietary stuff. So, you know, they're getting along really well. But that's not the only company that Capcom's making some friends with. They cut a deal with a small Japanese developer by the name of Psycho. You have probably never heard of this company before, unless you are really into the genre that Psycho specialized in, shooters. Not first-person shooters, we are talking classic arcade shmumps. Psycho's most recognizable titles are games like Gunbird and Strikers 1945, which, to be fair, are actually pretty well regarded among shmup enthusiasts. This is one of those companies that knew what it was about and very much catered to that audience. And in the year 2000, Psycho and Capcom worked together and released a game by the name of Cannon Spike, which came out on the Dreamcast later that year in North America and Japan. Interestingly, it came out in 2002 in Europe, as the last official release for the Sega Dreamcast. We're not even done covering all the Mega Man games that came out on the PlayStation 1 yet, but somehow while we blinked, we're at the end of the lifespan of the Dreamcast. I barely even talked about it, because there wasn't a whole lot of time to during Marvel vs. Capcom, and other Capcom games were not appearing on the Dreamcast. For those of you who weren't there for that little chapter of gaming history, Sony had the PlayStation 1, Nintendo had the Nintendo 64, and Sega had the Saturn, but the Saturn bombed. So Sega rushed out the door and came out with the Dreamcast, which was at the time of its release the most powerful hardware on the market, and it showed for a couple years. Unfortunately, the Dreamcast lacked long-term support from Sega, and before too long, the PlayStation 2 was on the horizon, Microsoft was looking to put out the Xbox, and Nintendo had its own GameCube in the making, all of which were going to outstrip the Dreamcast. Sega realized they couldn't put out another hardware advantage in order to give them the lead. They just couldn't do it. 
And so after the Master System and the Mega Drive and the Game Gear and the Saturn and the Dreamcast and all the peripherals for all those things, Sega finally threw up the towel and said, you know what, we're done trying to keep up in hardware and became just a game publisher instead of an actual console company. So the fact this game was one of the last official titles released for that is actually some but historically significant. Of course, not that anybody's really heard of this game. This game received a fairly small printing and is expensive. Even used copies of this game could run you over $150. What I'm saying is thank goodness for emulation. But let's talk more about gaming history for a moment, because um, this game's actually relatively short. This is going to be one of the shortest episodes I ever do if I don't take some time to like digress like this. Let's talk arcade history for just a moment, and let's talk specifically shmup history. Sega was seeing the end of an era happen, but that wasn't the only mainstay of gaming that was seeing, you know, kind of its death now. I mean, not to say Sega's dead. No, Sega's still alive and well. But my point is this. As far back as you can go in gaming, you will find the shoot-em-up. Like, literally, unless you go so far back that the only game is Pong, shooters have existed basically forever. Like, Space Invaders is one of the most recognizably basic video games ever, and one of the earliest ones. Because it was one of the first big games, it became one of the first big game genres. Galaga, Xevious, Gradius, R-Type, Thunder Force. I could start just naming games and games and games in the evolution of this whole genre, which, if you've never played a shmup before, you usually have a 2D plane some form of scrolling background that introduces enemies on either from the top of the screen or the right side of the screen as they scroll into position, and you're moving a ship around and shooting them down. Historically, these were sci-fi, or like maybe with Capcom's own very early shmup, 1942, they were based more on like warfare equipment with you piloting like helicopters or fighter jets, but something happened to this genre. There was a lot of reasons that this happened. For instance, the fact that home consoles became available and people started wanting longer and more fleshed out experiences than little like 25 minute arcade sittings. Arcade machines were getting better and more interesting and the people working at arcade hardware were coming up with more interesting game types that could only work in an arcade where they could build custom controllers. But also, the genre was just exceedingly popular. Every developer made shmups for a while. And the problem when everybody's making a genre is that only a handful really succeed. And with shmups especially being short experiences focused generally on high difficulty, the players who discovered they didn't really enjoy that sort of thing stopped playing, and the players who were good at that sort of thing and enjoyed them didn't come back if your game didn't offer them a challenge. So they had to get harder and harder. Trying to push difficulty to its limit was how we ended up with games like Don Pachi that ended up founding what we call the bullet hell genre these days. Games that were ultra-challenging, ultra-skillful, and also ultra-intimidating, and really scared off a lot of the people who might have been otherwise interested. A lot of developers trying to work in the genre, though, tried to find other more creative ways to hopefully draw back players, whether it was more creative in different settings, or titles like Radiant Silver Gun, which experimented with some extremely cool mechanics, but the damage was kind of done. Shmups weren't dead, 
Not by any means. They have always been around. But they were no longer a forefront genre. They were falling behind, and developers were struggling to find a way to make something to hopefully break out into the mainstream. Why am I bringing all of this up? Well, it's because Psycho was a shmup developer in this rough time period, and Cannon Spike is one of those experimental shmups that tried to really blur the lines of the genre away. One of the branches that emerged from the shmup evolution was something that would come to be known as the twin-stick shooter, although they didn't have two sticks yet. But the idea of, like, an arena of combat where one hand is able to control movement and the other hand is able to control the direction of your attacks, this is still something you see today as an evolution of the shmup genre. And that's where Cannon Spike is as a step in that evolution. So, what is Cannon Spike about? Honestly, hell if I can remember. Uh, something about futuristic, I think there's a bit of poverty and, like, terrorist cells exploding or something, so they give a bunch of people hover shoes in order to fight the terrorists? Listen, nobody cares about the story of this game, that's not what it's here for. Cannon Spike is a ten-stage long twin-stick shooter, which is based on putting the player into small arenas and having them duke it out with, usually, a handful of waves of enemies, a mid-boss, and then an actual boss, and then moving on to the next stage. What made Cannon Spike special was that it was Psycho's combo project with Capcom, which means all seven of the different playable characters that you can choose from are Capcom classics. Well, okay, five of them are classic Capcom characters. Classic good old Mega Man is there. Baby Bonnie Hood from Darkstalkers is there, with her explosives and all. Cammy's here, and Charlie from Street Fighter. Classic Ghosts and Goblins Arthur is here, although he is now piloting a giant mech version of himself instead. Plus, you had two other characters who were essentially re-envisionings of some extremely old and obscure Capcom designs. And I mean really obscure characters. One of the characters is legitimately a re-envisioning of a character from one of three arcade games in a super obscure Capcom arcade title called Three Wonders, and that's like, that is how far we we are digging. Functionally, we could consider these two original characters. Of these seven characters, each of them does actually play fairly differently. As mentioned, every character has the ability to move around freely and attack in whatever direction, but only one attack is really shared between every character, which is an essentially default machine gun type function, which doesn't do the greatest damage, but hey, you can attack from range. If you use the right trigger, you can lock onto your enemies too. Although, that lock-on weirdly only lasts for several seconds and then needs to be refreshed, and I'm not sure why they did this. Like, this game absolutely feels like it should be a twin-stick shooter, but until you can use that lock-on, you don't have a second stick to direct your fire. You need to be able to use the lock-on to move freely while still attacking, otherwise you have to move towards your opponent to attack them which isn't always how you want to be 
moving. And I'll try not to get too hung up on that, but that is like one of those things that just didn't feel like a necessary little limitation in the system. They could have just let the lock-on last. Anyway, beyond that, though, every character also has what's referred to as a heavy projectile, which takes very, very different forms depending on which character you are using. For instance, Charlie gets a heavy shot that's slow and lingers around on its target to deal some extra damage, or Baby Hood gets a flamethrower in that direction for a few seconds while being slowed in movement. Every character has both a light melee combo that they can just use to bash somebody in front of them, and also a heavy physical attack that they can do, which again changes based on character entirely. For BB Hood, it's throwing out a grenade in front of her. For Cammy, it's her actual cannon spike move. That is the name of the move and has always been in Street Fighter. <laughs> and every character has a special that effectively acts like a traditional shmup bomb. In fact, you even have to pick them up off of your opponents in order to have more of them. These bombs grant temporary invincibility and deliver some kind of powerful attack to your opponents. Some of these are super snappy. For instance, Arthur, in his giant robot, just pauses for a split second to unleash a giant piercing laser beam in a direction and then gets right back into the action. Every single character in this game, by virtue of having these different heavy attacks and specials be completely different from one another, does actually play the game fairly distinctly to one another, because you really do want to take advantage of all of these different advantages that these characters have. For instance, BB Hood's flamethrowers make her excellent at fighting things at mid-range. Arthur is big and slow, but a lot of his attacks have a ton of hit stun, which is a weird sentence to say in a shmup, but genuinely, he's able to make his enemies flinch out of their animations. Where's Mega Man in all of this? Well, he's a pretty versatile character. As you would expect, his heavy shot is the classic charged Mega Buster shot, though you don't actually have to charge it up. It has the advantage of being explosive when it hits, which means that it's able to deal with clusters of enemies really well, and it does a decent chunk of damage to bosses, although it's not the strongest projectile in the game by a large margin. If you want to do some heavy damage with Mega Man, though, get in close and use the Tornado Hold, which takes a second to wind up, but leaves a gigantic projectile traveling a short distance that deals repeated damage while it's over top of enemies and can just melt bosses. But that requires you to be able to safely get in and not get hit for like a second or two in close. His bomb is not really Mega Man. This one's weird. He rolls up into a ball and then pretends he's like Sonic or something and just like slams into enemies for a little while while invincible. It's one of the honestly less impressive specials in the game in terms of damage output, but it is a long-lasting invincibility, so it's not bad. Still, while Mega Man does have some risky aspects to do the most damage that he can, the fact that he's a solid fighter at basically any range and has his solid variety of tools and good safety on his special did make him fairly fun to play as overall. So, I can't talk about these stages in a strictly numerical order, because one of the things Psycho famously did with a few of its different shmups was to have the first few stages of their games be randomized. 
not like completely procedurally generated the way we would think of like a roguelike or something, but rather the first four stages in this game come at you in a random order and you don't have any control of that. They will scale a little bit. If you take on a stage first and then on your next playthrough see that stage be fourth, you'll notice that there's a few more projectiles and enemies are a little bit more aggressive. And that's also probably using the same difficulty scaling as the actual difficulty settings of this game, which there's a sliding scale from 1 to 7 on difficulty, and it feels like it's like starting that many stages into the game, which, who boy, let me tell you, the final boss of this game doesn't need the scaling, but we'll get there when we get there. I'm not going to cover every single stage in this game, because they all have their own little twists and stuff, but not all of them are super interesting to actually describe, so I'll cover basically what most of these stages look like. You start out the stage in a usually largely rectangular arena. For instance, we'll say on the Tokyo streets, just in a cordoned off area, and there'll be a wave or two or three of random enemies to deal with. As you deal with each wave of enemies and shoot them down, they'll drop health and maybe extra max health or extra bombs. Take out enough of them, the mini-boss will spawn in. Once you take out that mini-boss, you'll be escorted usually to a differently shaped arena. And when I say escorted, I mean literally teleported there in a snap. This game is very quick about going encounter to encounter to encounter. Sometimes it's a little jarring in that regard, actually. But in that new arena, you'll fight the stage's actual boss. For instance, in this Tokyo Street stage that I mentioned, the boss is not actually one unit, but rather three different mechs. Each of them has fairly low health, but they all have different attacks that they will barrage you with, and so you want to focus one of them down as quickly as possible so that you can more easily handle the other two, because once you've only got two of them coming at you, they're actually pretty easy. Another good demonstration stage is a stage that was very clearly Resident Evil-inspired. When you begin the stage, you are fending off zombies that are slowly walking to you. There'll be a wave of ads that spawns in that are like zombie dogs chasing you down. You have to deal with like a mutant gorilla as the mid-boss. And then you go inside this church building for the boss fight, and there's like a giant zombie dragon type thing there. And the truth is, is I've probably spent almost as much time in that description covering the stage as the amount of time it might take you to finish the stage. I really want to stress this. This is a snappy game. It's 10 stages long, but speedruns of this game finish in under 10 minutes. Once we hit stage 5, we start to see more structured and deliberate stages and a little bit more cohesion in their progression. And we also start to see some more dangerous mini-bosses, and especially boss fights. Stage 5 is where the gloves start to come off. In Stage 5, our arena for the first half involves fighting on a helipad. It all breaks apart and we start skiing down the mountain that this helipad was on while dealing with a snowboarding robot behind us. And this robot is where we start to see that this game has some genuine shmup elements to it. A piece of shmup history here again. Shmups kind of diverged at one point. Some classic shmups kept the feeling of the old games. If, if it grazed you, it hit you. Some other games went in the direction of Dodonpachi and other bullet hells that were emerging. As long as the projectile didn't hit your core, the very center of your character, you were actually fine. 
Now, Ken and Spike is not a one-hit kill game. You actually have a significant amount of HP in this game, but also you have extremely little invincibility frames. And so if multiple bullets hit you in quick succession, you can take a lot of damage very quickly. If you do take a lot of damage very quickly, it will eventually cap off and you'll get knocked into the air and knocked down, but you'll be invincible the whole while to prevent an abrupt and sudden death. But this boss is the first one where you can start to feel the fact that Psycho had never really adopted the bullet hell methodology. Now that we're working with like 3D models and stuff, it can be a little bit tough to tell just how uh, safe you are and to position yourself correctly against some of these attacks. Still, the next couple stages are not really that bad. Stage 7 is fun in that it's a swamp-themed stage. There's just an alligator who shows up as part of the enemies in the initial wave. You don't have to defeat the alligator in order to progress the stage. Also, the alligator explodes when you defeat it. Everything in this game uses the same explosion graphic when it's defeated. It's absolutely silly, but the alligator especially is just choice. The stage also has us fighting a dude with a spear as the final boss at the end of it, which is like one of the first bosses in this game that really is like, oh yeah, it's just going to chase you down in melee range, and can start to display the importance of the speed difference between characters, and how some characters may struggle to get out of the way of certain attacks. Stage 8 theoretically has us assaulting the enemy base finally, whatever those enemies' objectives actually were, whoever they were. Mid-bosses from previous stages return as the bosses of this stage, one of whom, by the way, is Balrog? Vega? I don't know which one Capcom currently refers to them as, because there was a whole mess in Street Fighter's history. A character with a mask and claws who, in some localizations, was named Vega, and in some localizations was named Balrog. There was also a boxer character who also served as a mid-boss in the early Street Fighter games, who would have the other name. And I believe this is actually maybe still a problem in Street Fighter? Anyway, the text for the name says Balrog, but he's literally here fighting you, because, you know, why not actually put in a couple recognizable Capcom figures? In Stage 9, we theoretically get to deal with the organization's leaders, and this is where the game stops being fair. There's no more, like, trash waves at this point, just two bosses, the first of whom is a two-phase fight where she herself just uses like a sniper rifle and teleports around, and if she was alone it wouldn't be that bad, but you had better blow a special or two getting rid of her two pet cats really early, otherwise they just randomly attack you with a spread of bullets with no logic, which when all they have to do is slightly tap your character model in order to do damage to you and stun you out of whatever animation you're trying to do, um, ow. And then she transforms into this panther beast thing that dives around the arena and spreads bullets everywhere and can just jump on you real damn quick. And This is compounded by the actual leader of the organization. He likes to teleport around. He can create doppelgangers of himself that if you don't hit-stun him or have like some wide-ranging attack already good to go when they spawn, any of them can use any of his attacks and then just dissipate. And some of his attacks are super hard to respond to real quick, and Psycho likes really fast and really brutal bullet patterns. Especially with the final boss in stage 10, it becomes really apparent. The final boss, by the way, is just a giant mech with two phases, and the thing that really kills me is during the second phase, there is an attack where it just spins around and shoots out a hail of bullets. And there is technically small gaps in this hail of bullets that you can weave between, and you can 
rotate in the same direction as the boss, and if you're far enough away and moving at the right speed and pace, you can avoid the attack. But also, you had better pray that the gap in those bullets was aimed at you to begin with, because you don't have any control over that, and you can't do anything about it. And your character is not small enough to fit between these, like, waves of bullets in any other location, and what you end up with is unfortunately a final couple stages of a game that should be a cool boss rush, but that really feel more like they are just tests to see how many spare lives and bombs you made it through the game with. Because playing it safe and dodging their attacks just isn't a realistic option. So here's the thing. Cannon Spike's actually pretty fun. Like, it's a little bit clunky, yeah, the lock-on isn't super great, but the characters are varied, and blowing up all these bosses is fun, and the fact that this game makes it so that even boss fights, quote-unquote, usually go down in two or three of your character's strongest attacks, and then bam, you're into the next fight, bam, you're into the next fight, bam, you're into the next stage. This game goes quick in a way I actually really appreciate. It makes it fun. It's just that this game is actually kind of brutal to finish. It took me several tries because there is a limit of two continues per playthrough of this game. And especially towards the end of the game, honestly do a lot of stuff that I do feel borders on kind of unfair and nonsense and not realistically reactable. In spite of that, it is fun. If you wanted to go try it out, I would say go for it. Again, it's a quick game. You can understand it very, very quickly. It does take time to get to that ridiculous point. It's just, there is a thin line when approaching difficulty in shmups and in gaming in general, where you can feel very quickly like there wasn't anything you could do, and this game can really cross that line sometimes. Still, for a game that I had literally never heard of before I booted it up a couple days ago, I wasn't expecting, like, an early twin-stick shooter type of game. So what I got out of this game was a pleasant little surprise. Not something I think is amazing, but a pleasant little surprise. As for the music of this game, I don't think I'm actually going to sit down and highlight three tracks. Not because the music in this game is bad. I've been sprinkling it through, and you probably heard that. But let's just say I've also been cherry-picking the better tracks on the soundtrack. Most of it is really short loops, because it's for stages that realistically are going to be very short, and not really all that interesting to listen to on its own, which is kind of a surprise for the shmup genre. Usually this genre has amazing soundtracks. I am going to highlight the regular boss theme, though, because it's real good. And more than just being really good, it's really good in a Mega Man X sort of way.
And with that, we're done with canon, Spike, and we are done with the Dreamcast, because that was it for the lifespan of the Dreamcast. Man, that came and went real fast, didn't it? We're not quite done with this year in gaming, though. Even though it feels like we've been here a long time, I think it's time to go finally revisit the Legends series. It's going to be a big time investment. It might be one of those three-week waits. This game's going to be a little bit longer. In the meantime, you can contact me at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at whatamipodcast4, as in using the number 4. WAIPF.podbean.com if you want the latest, you know, episodes or RSS feed or anything like that. As usual, I've been Garlisle, and just remember yes, Cammy's a really fan servicey design. Her thong is so tight you almost don't even see it sometimes. But this is a rare instance of a game doing fan service for both sides because whoever designed Sheba knew exactly who they were appealing to. Seriously, they took a little gremlin-looking characters and somehow just decided, hey, shirtless punk skater boy. And whichever Capcom artist was responsible for this, to them I say, thank you!